Well, hopefully you're in Exodus chapter 19, and the title of our message this morning is Set Apart. Now, I was once told that anytime you begin a message, you always want to begin with an introductory statement, probably not more than 12 words. I can hear Pastor Chuck Swindoll saying that. Not more than 12 words long. And so in my preparation, in my opening statement, I want to encourage you this morning to listen to what we are about to talk about. The reason being is that in it, this Old Testament passage is going to point us to a question that many Christians have. What is the will of God for my life? We're going to discover this morning what the will of God is for your life. Do I have your attention yet? I hope so, because by the end of the message today, you're going to know definitively what the will of God is for your life. Let's open our hearts with prayer. Father, we come before you this morning as we begin to enter your word together. And Father, as we continue with the children of Israel and Moses, as we have been reading their time through the wilderness, now at the foot of Mount Sinai, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. You now begin to reveal to your people, the nation of Israel, what you desire from them, what you desire them to be. And Father, we see a a strong parallel to what the New Testament asks for us as believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, Lord, we discover what your will is for us. So, Father, speak to our hearts and minds. Challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us. Be with us this morning as we study your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 20 of Exodus is the Ten Commandments. And often when the Ten Commandments are taught, they jump right into the very first commandment that isn't exactly found until verse 3. In fact, Moses writes to us in verses 1 and 2, and I'd like you to look there with me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage or slavery. It is in those two verses that we understand that Moses is referring, God is referring to the events that have taken place up until the moment that he gave Moses the Ten Commandments to give to the children of Israel. To understand fully what the Ten Commandments are all about, we must first understand what transpired prior to the giving of those Ten Commandments. And that's what we have been doing for several months now. We have been journeying through uh, chapter 1 now into chapter 19, which we are now finally at the foot of Mount Sinai. And as we gather there together with the children of Israel in the Word, we discover that they are there for a long period of time, past the point of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Actually, for 11 months, they simply gather around this mountain. A mountain in which God will now appear to them in a very uh, dynamic way. But in chapter 19, we are given the purpose, the reason why God brought them out of the nation of Egypt. And why God has brought them to this place. He was preparing for himself a people. And these people were going to have a very specific responsibility here on this earth now that they are his chosen people. 
And as a result, we will discover what God has called us out of the world to fulfill and to do. And so as we bring you up to speed, we are going to be concentrating on the first six verses of chapter 19, looking at it very closely, and then we are going to wrap it up with the remainder of the chapter as we find themselves preparing for the appearance of God. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Exodus 19, verse 1. On that third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, it's a little over one year since they have left, On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They went out from uh, Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you will say, you shall say to the house of Jacob and to tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God now reveals directly to Moses the purpose of the deliverance out of Egypt for the children of Israel. He has brought them to this place that they may now know and discover who they truly are now that God has called them out of Egypt. When God demonstrated his power against the Egyptians, he's asking us first and foremost to remember what he has done to the Egyptians. What did he do before the Egyptians? Well, he made it clear that he was the only one true God. In each event that occurred in the ten plagues, he was systematically dismantling any possibility of the pagan gods of Egypt being true or having any power or authority in and of themselves. He showed himself superior to each and every one of them within the ten plagues that he pronounced upon the nation of Egypt. But he also proved himself superior to Pharaoh, limiting and uh, eliminating through the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh the lineage that would continue after Pharaoh. And he also brought the Egyptians to the edge of the Red Sea where there he drowned the armies in their entirety. God showed himself superior in this event. He showed himself that he is the sovereign God of all, that he is holy, and that he is all authoritatively in charge of everything. That nothing is going to stand before him or stand in his way of his desired fulfillment of the future for his people. God showed himself strong. He then goes on to say, Remember what I did to the Egyptians, but how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God demonstrated that he was able to secure and safely keep his people. While judging the others, even when the plagues unfolded upon Egypt, the children of Israel were spared many of those plagues. And they were separated. And those plagues did not befall them, including the Passover where the blood protected them from the angel of the Lord that went about 
slaying the firstborn. And God delivered his people and reserved those Egyptians for judgment. So he showed and proved that he was capable of saving. That he was capable of delineating between the righteous and the wicked. And that he was able to separate and call out for himself a people from amongst them all. And he bore them. It was him who carried them out. It was his grace, his ability. It was God who brought the people to this point on eagle's wings. But only if the people would have remembered that when Jesus arrived. When Jesus arrived and he came to Jerusalem, he sat on top of the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 23 and he wept over Jerusalem because they had forgotten that very fact that it was God who bore them on eagle's wings out of Egypt to establish a people for himself. They had forgotten that. And as Jesus wept there on the Mount of Olives, he said these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks or brood under her wing, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate, Jesus went on to say, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So by the time Jesus arrived, the people had forgotten their history. They had forgotten where they had come from. And they had abandoned God. They thought that they were still God's people, and they were by the fact of the promise that he made to Abraham. But in actuality, their lips drew near to him, but their hearts were extremely far from him. They had gone to a place of religiosity rather than a deep, intimate relationship with their God. They had forgotten where they had come from. But not only that, notice from our text this morning that he also wanted them to know that he has kept his promises. Not only is he capable of saving and reserving those for judgment, but he also kept his promises. As he made to the children of Israel in Exodus three sixteen and 17, he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what uh, has been done to you in Egypt, and I can promise that I will bring you up out of the, the affliction of the Egyptians to a land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's able to save. He keeps his promises towards his people, all demonstrated within this act of deliverance. Remember what I've done to the Egyptians, and remember that I have bore you on eagle's wing and brought you to myself. And then in verse 5, he moves here. Now therefore, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now we're introduced to this word. A word that has such meaning in the Old Testament. They are pivotal points throughout the Old Testament. It is where God has made an agreement with man. This covenant I am now making with you. It is a conditional covenant. Some of them were unconditional in the Bible. Some of them were conditional. This one was conditional. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, verse 6, a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the nation of Israel. To understand the covenants of the Old Testament gives you the understanding of the climax that occurs in the gospel at the Feast of the Last Supper. For at the Feast of the Last Supper, one of the greatest prophecies is fulfilled of the Old Testament, and that is the establishment of a new covenant between God and man. A covenant that was prophesied and given in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which we will look at in just a moment. So to understand the covenants, the agreements, the contracts between God and man, again, some being conditional, some being unconditional. An unconditional covenant, for example, was one given to Abraham, where God said to Abraham very clearly that through Abraham he was going to bless all of the nations. It was above Abraham's ability and control. This is something God promised that he would do, and God did. That blessing was in the person of Jesus Christ. A conditional covenant is where God asks of us something to keep our end of the agreement. And this one was a conditional covenant. Though God's covenant to Abraham secures Israel as God's chosen people in whom we now have been grafted into as believing Gentiles in Jesus Christ, this grafting into is spoken of by Paul in Romans, and this is why we now are able to be part of the church, etc., through the person of Jesus Christ. But Israel is God's people who he delivered, and he's not finished with them yet. So the covenants begin in the Garden of Eden, between Adam and Eve and God, saying you can eat of all the trees of the garden except the one that is given for the knowledge of good and evil. Conditional covenant in which they broke. Then God made a covenant with Adam shortly after that, that Adam shall till the garden, and he should uh, work, and God would then further, through Adam, bring about uh, the promises that God has made to Adam. From Adam, we then go to Noah, and then the covenant was made between God and Noah. And then from Noah, we go to Abraham, and another covenant was made with Abraham. And then from Abraham, we go to Moses, and another covenant was made with Moses, the one we are looking at this morning. And after Moses, we find a covenant made with David. And from David, he would sit on the throne forever. His lineage would continue forever. And that obviously occurred in the person of Jesus Christ because both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. And it was Christ who fulfilled that promise. And that leads us to the new covenant. A new covenant that was established at that moment that Jesus Christ broke the bread and gave of the cup to his disciples. A covenant that was uh, described and promised in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. You can read along with me if you like. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke. 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. It is that covenant that Jesus established with his disciples, and then fulfilled by fulfilling the purpose of his dissension on this earth, which was the death, the burial, and the resurrection that followed. If they would obey his voice... If they would heed what he says, they would become a treasure possession. God states very clearly that the earth is his. He created it and all that is in it. All of it is his, and he has chosen these people, not for any reason of their own. They do not warrant it. They do not deserve it. They have not earned it. It is a complete act of God's sovereign grace towards them. And he has led them, and he has brought them to this place. And if they would be obedient, they would be the most precious possession, a treasured possession, he says, out of all of the earth. And then they shall become a kingdom of priests, Ones that represent God to people and people to God. And then they would become a holy nation, pure, consecrated, set apart from the world for the purposes of God. Now often when we read a text like this and we get into the details of it, we lose some of the most basic fundamental questions that I believe should be asked when we read such a text. When I was reading this, I just, I just thought to myself, what an interesting scenario the children of Israel found themselves in. And I use that word interesting very lightly. It was pretty significant. But I want to challenge you with this. For 400 years, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. Servitude. They could not control their own fate or destiny. They could not determine their own future. And now God has given them freedom, real freedom, because he eliminated their enemies and released them from the bondage of Egypt. The question that they are now faced with is, what do you do with that freedom? We live in a nation that prides itself on the freedom that it provides for its citizens. But I ask you the question, now that freedom has been provided for us, what do we do with it? Did you ever think about that for a moment? Are we actually free? Are we actually free people? Well, obviously we're constrained by the laws of the land that are necessary to control freedom. Freedom without control is called chaos. So laws are good. They are boundaries. They inhibit man from hurting each other. So laws are important to the freedom that we enjoy, but what do we do with the freedom that we have? What do we do with the freedom that we have? Can we honestly say that we are free, but we're addicted to pornography or sex or drugs? Are we really free? 
Are we free if we are loaded down by such financial debt that we no longer have the ability to enjoy our freedom but are required and destined to do all that we can just to maintain our financial position? Are we really free? When it comes to substance abuse in our nation, if we have these things, are we really free? And the answer is no, we are not really free. We are still under bondage. That's why freedom in and of itself is one thing. But to be able to enjoy that freedom, you need something greater than yourself. If any nation has demonstrated that, it is our nation. Think of that for a moment. Are we really free as individuals? Do not the choices and decisions that we make each and every day impact that freedom for the betterment or for the worse? The children of Israel had their freedom, but the question is now, what are you going to do with it? God has provided a freedom by His grace for His people. What do you do with it? What are you doing with the freedom that you have, either as a citizen of the United States or more superiorly, the freedom that you are given in Jesus Christ? And have you come to a place where you are truly in, in, uh, enjoying that freedom? Jesus said, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, even though I may enjoy the freedoms of the United States of America, which I am so thankful for, I am so grateful for, I still need God to allow me to enjoy that freedom in which I have because God can give me freedom from the bondages that I would place myself within. He can give me the strength to overcome any bondage that I may subject myself to. He has the freedom in His Word to give us wisdom to make wise decisions so those decisions don't come back to haunt us and lay uh, shackles upon us ourselves again. These are such important questions that we need to ask ourselves. What do we do with the freedom that we have? God's saying that if you will obey me, if you will heed my voice and keep my covenant, have you ever considered these things in the context of your personal life? Paul cherished this freedom. He realized that he had this freedom. And he wrote about this freedom when he said, All things are lawful for me in 1 Corinthians 6.12. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but I will be dominated or brought into the subjection of none of them. He knew how important that freedom that he had in Christ was. And he cherished it. And he did all that he possibly could to remain free. So I have the freedom in this nation to enjoy my freedom that only God can provide for me. What are you doing with the freedom you have? One wrote this in his commentary. The redemptive prerequisites to covenant relationship is unconditional. God was the one who delivered them and brought them to himself at his own initiative by his own grace. What is conditional was their success in achieving His purpose for them. 
that they may be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. So there is a condition amongst an unconditional position. God has brought them there. God has saved you. God has given you freedom in Christ. What are you doing with the freedom that you have in Christ? So then Moses then comes back down in verse 7 to instruct the people and to ask the people to prepare themselves. Let's read together. In verse 7, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all of these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Sometimes we should think before we speak. The heart is willing. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We cry out to God and say, Oh, yes, God, whatever you so desire, but then our flesh wants to take us in the opposite direction. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe in you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai and in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, that is shot with an arrow. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain." And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed, and they washed their garments and said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Preparing them for what is about to happen next. We are introduced to the word consecration. Get ready. Prepare yourself. Throughout the Old Testament, we have beautiful illustrations of what individuals were required to do prior to interacting with God. We know here that these people had to wash their garments for two days, for on the third day, God was going to come down upon the mountain in a thick cloud with a long trumpet blast. They could not even uh, touch a woman. They were to remain pure in all manners. And just taking a moment to consecrate themselves unto God, to prepare themselves for God. We so often lose the reality of that because of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. See, we don't consider how we need to prepare ourselves because God has already prepared us in the person of Jesus. But when you go and you read the Word of God, when you go to pray and interact with God, when you sing worship before the Lord as you have this morning, know that all of that is possible because of Jesus. Now, what did Jesus need to do to make that possible, to prepare you to interact with God? He needed to go to the cross. Think of that for a moment. He needed to go to the cross to be able to prepare you to go before the Father. That's what he needed to do. 
And then you coming and repenting and believing on Him, He justified you, made you clean, and therefore you now are able to go boldly into the throne room of God. So they're washing their clothes and they're abstaining from any kind of physical intimacy, preparing themselves in a consecration. Look at how the high priest needed to be prepared before he went into the Holy of Holies once a year. And if they didn't do it right, he was a goner. The Lord would strike him dead. So what they did is they tied a rope to the high priest's ankle and put bells on the bottom of his robe. And if the bells stopped ringing, they started pulling. Think about that for a minute. All of this was necessary to go before God. And yet at the cross, when Jesus Christ hung his head and said it was finished, that incredible curtain that separated man and God that only the high priest himself could pass once a year, only being consecrated in a very specific manner, who if not performing that consecration properly, could be struck down by the holiness of God, Jesus has done all of that for us. I don't know about you, but right there, we could just stop our message this morning and just worship God and saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But it goes on. This is what they have done to prepare themselves. And notice the timing of this. God has a way of allowing things to occur to prepare the people for what he is about to do next. Even though that event would be some thousands of years later. Isn't it interesting that he was preparing the people for the third day? Sound familiar? Sound familiar? It should. The third day, God was going to appear to his people. Verse 16, On the mountain of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai uh, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they should break through to the Lord. Simply to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now this is so important that we see all of this. It is God's desire 
that they obey his voice and keep his covenant, and they would be a treasured possession. They would be a kingdom of priests. They would be a holy nation. This is what God desired for these people. This is God saying to his people, this is what I want you to do with the freedom that you now have. The freedom that you now have. You are to serve me. You are to worship me. And in so doing, I will bless. I will bless you. That's what he is saying here. One wrote about this consecration. He said, The combination of washing themselves and changing their clothes, witnessing the storm that broke on top of the mountain, and keeping their distance from Sinai, couldn't help but impress the people with their own sinfulness and God's majestic holiness. They were called to be sanctified people, unlike the nations around them. Only as they obeyed God could they truly enjoy the privilege of being a kingdom of priests, God's special possession, His special treasure, and His own holy nation. That's what God desired of them. We are now seeing why the Ten Commandments are so vitally important to the incredible narrative that we call the Christian faith. It was from this, God establishing a people, and now we see God's desire for the nation of Israel. They were to be a special treasure to Him. They are, they still are, but they were meant to be a kingdom of priests, what they can no longer be in a holy nation, which they are no longer also. Because they have forsaken their God. And God has dealt with them through the Old Testament, through numerous trips into Babylon. And once again, He will deal with them at the end of all things. For the book of Revelations, chapter uh, 6 through 19, show the final act of judgment upon the nation of Israel that also includes the entire world. But let's wrap it up for us this morning. I promised you that at the beginning of our time together, I would tell you what God's will is for your life. Many wrestle with this question. Now, personally, I believe that once we position ourselves before God properly, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but that proper position before God is beautifully articulated by Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 where he asks us to become living sacrifices before the Lord, which is only our reasonable service, our reasonable act of worship. If we today truly say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, many of us have contemplated the aspect of him as our Savior, saving us from the wrath that is to come. But do we really understand and subject ourselves daily to His Lordship? Do you not know that the Bible calls the followers of Jesus Christ in Greek doulos, which is translated in English in its purest form to slaves? That once you became a Christian, you became a slave to Christ. He becomes your Lord. And yes, He has granted you incredible freedom. He has also asked you to subject yourself to His Lordship. Just as He has 
with the people here in our text this morning. So what is the Lord's will for your life? It begins with an understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of being set apart. To be set apart. The moment you came and repented and believed on Christ and you received saving faith, you were born again, you became a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become brand new, reconciled once again unto God you were strangers, and now you are, you are in a relationship with God the Father through Christ once again. Sin being dealt with by Christ's finality at the cross and through his death and resurrection. Justified before God, you have now been positionally sanctified. And picture it as this, that you standing in a group of people, God has grabbed you out of that group of people and put you over here into a new group of people, and that new group of people is called the church. That's what God has done for you. Think of it this way. How many of us remember, and maybe you don't want to remember this morning, when we were in junior high school or maybe even elementary school, and on the playground during recess, you'd either want to play one of three games. It was softball, baseball, or kickball. And it always began the exact same way. And for some, this was a terrifying moment. For two captains would be selected for the entire grade, and then they would go about picking people. They would flip a coin to see who picks first, and they would begin picking players, and they would start with the best players, and the ones left to the end were ones that, well, I guess really weren't desired. Now, some of you might have been the captain. Some of you might have been the first pick. Other of you might start shaking right now because you remember what it was like to stand there in the middle of the field being the last one to be picked. And both captains looking at each other and both teams looking at each other and says, well, go ahead, just take him if you want him. It doesn't matter anyway. But you remember that idea of separation. It was beyond your control. It was just something that occurred. And you were being separated into two teams. When you got saved, God separated you from the world. And He brought you into the body of Christ, the church. Okay? You're not the last one picked. Okay? So let me ease your fears there. God didn't say, well, nobody else wants Him. I think He did for me personally. But for you, I'm sure that wasn't the case. But think of that. God brought you out of the world positionally before him, and now you are a member of the church and part of the kingdom of God. But you don't see that, do you? It's not physical. It's something that's happened spiritually. It is a permanent position. God has removed you from one, brought you to another. It was by his grace that he did so, and he has brought you now into the body of Christ. You are sanctified at that moment. Let me read for you some scripture that Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God has moved you to a new group. 
And though we are still in the world, and think of this group as not two separate groups, that's probably a poor illustration, but two groups on top of each other that God has set apart and sees from his perspective who is his and who are not. Now, that is a positional reality before God, but it isn't necessarily yet a practical one. It isn't necessarily a practical one. But it becomes a practical one. There is the process of sanctification. You're sanctified in Jesus Christ, but it is now a work that continues in you to the day that the Lord retrieves you, calls you home to a perfect state of glorification. That's the end process of sanctification. But day by day, we're a work in progress, aren't we? So as you read God's Word... And you learn God's Word. And God's Word challenges you to live or to walk in a certain way. To repent of things that you were accustomed to doing prior to becoming a Christian. Because now they are no longer acceptable before God. This isn't what God would have for you. And God always has the best for you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And therefore is able to determine what is best for you. And this process Paul articulated in Romans 6.19 when he said, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Or when he wrote... Now may the God of peace himself, in 1 Thessalonians five twenty three and 24, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the whole thing. What's happening now is that once you became a believer, you were separated, you are now in the church, you are now part of the kingdom of God. And now that the Holy Spirit resides in you as a believer, He is now working in you, conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ, which means His character and attributes. And He is therefore changing you because He loves you too much to leave you the way He found you. And that's where it's a work in progress each and every day. That's where when we spend time in the Word of God and we spend time in prayer, we say, Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. Lord, change me. Work in me, Lord, that I may resemble my Lord Jesus Himself. And what I do, in what I say, and even in what I think, the mind is the beginning of all sin that manifests itself. Let God have all of me. So I know you've been waiting patiently, and now that you see that God wants to set you apart, not only positionally, which He did in and of Himself, that was a work of grace, that grace continues in your life to bring about conformity into the image of Jesus Christ day by day, allowing you to become the man or woman that God always intended you to be, but that sin hindered and destroyed. So what is the will of God for your life? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you will. And we'll close with this this morning. Often when we talk about the will of God, we are more concerned about the 
decisions that we have to make each and every day, which are important and should be brought to God in prayer, to make sure that we are not making decisions that would take us away from what God would desire, but bring us closer to it. But there are general statements in the Bible that are seriously significant for you to adopt prior to seeking God on those items that are not mentioned in Scripture specifically. Meaning, be obedient to what you know Scripture says directly and go from there. So what is the will of God for your life? Let's begin here in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing it, that you do it more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, and you might want to underline this. For this is the will of God. Okay? Very clear. No ambiguity. It's not subjective. And that will is your sanctification. It is God's will for your life to allow yourself to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ as you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to change you from the inside out. And here specifically, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is rampant in our nation. Our society tells us that almost any kind of sexual act is almost permissible today. But God says no. And it is His desire that we remain pure, other than the context of marriage where it is permissible between a husband and a wife, which is male and female, by the way. That each one of you know, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So specifically, he was writing to those at the time about sexual immorality that continues with us today. But here it is, the will of God, sanctification, that you would control your body in holiness and in honor. Fully devoted unto God. Not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We as Christians should not act like the world. We should be different from the world that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Meaning, if you don't agree with this, you're not arguing with man, but God himself, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's will, that you be sanctified. That you be sanctified before Him. Because Peter writes about us as the church. He says that we have become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have mercy. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And in the close of the Bible itself, we are called priests in Revelation 1, 5 and 6. And from Jesus the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us 
a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When the Israelites rejected their Messiah, though they remain God's chosen people out of this world and God still has affection and love for them, Paul himself wished he would die and be accursed so he could suffer the wrath that is going to become upon those people. He desired the Jewish people to be saved. But when they rejected their Messiah, God then turned to the church, which was a mystery of Jew and Gentile together in one body. God is not done with his people, the nation of Israel, for they are the epicenter of all that is going on in the world. Look to Jerusalem to know where we are concerning the Lord's return. For in 1948, they gathered again in a nation in in an event that has stunned the world. After being removed for thousands of years, they are now returned in their land exactly as the Bible said it would happen. They want to rebuild a temple that will allow them to worship their God again, again prophesied in the Bible stating that that will occur. And it will be made in the courtyards of the Dome of the Rock. And God will begin to be worshipped in that way again. And a treaty will be made by one who we know as the Antichrist with God's people, the Jewish people, to allow them to build that temple. They have the design, they have the plot, they have the instruments, they have the utilities, they have the funds, they are ready to do it. God is pointing to all these things and says, it is a sign to you to say that I am coming back. John wrote 1 John and the book of Revelation. And in 1 John, he says that all who have the hope of the Lord's return purifies themselves in that hope. It's time now to get right with God. This is no accident what is happening in the world today. It is further evidence that we are growing ever so close to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are we ready? Are we ready? Are we ready to allow God to examine us? Are we ready for His return? Are we ready for the difficulties that lie ahead for those who call themselves Christians? Are we ready? Because we are God's chosen people. He has called us out. He has set upon us to be representatives, but us before the people for God and the people before God. We, the church, are we ready?